You're listening to audio from The Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about The Village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Today's focal passage is Hosea 11, uh, verse 12 through 1214. It'll be on the screens in front of you. If you want, I'll give you a second to turn in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, you can grab one of the connect desks. Connect? That's not fun to say. (laughs) The connect area, and they will get you one. All right, starting with uh, verse 12 in chapter 11. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence, and they make covenants with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. A merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. I have found wealth for myself. And all my labors, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord your God from the land of Egypt. I will make you dwell in tents as in the days of the appointed feast. I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. In there is iniquity in Gilead. They shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife, and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt, and by a prophet he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. This is the word of the Lord. You all can be seated, and any children can be dismissed to their classes. Good morning. Good morning. So you guys aren't sick, right? Cool. It's good to know. Uh, My name is Scott. I'm one of the pastors here of the village. Um, Get the privilege of preaching for you this morning. If you would, join me in prayer before we get started. Uh, God, thank you for your word. Thanks for uh, capturing and recording, inspiring uh, the words that that Don read for us this morning, um, that we get to sit on and think through, that um, we get to consider for the next few minutes. Um, And God, I just pray that you would help us to hear what you want us to say. I pray that you would preach to us this morning. You know what each of us needs to hear. um, And I just pray that you would take down the stuff, the filters, the assumptions that we make that would cause us to hear you wrongly. And would you help us to believe maybe for the first time and maybe for the millionth time things that are true about you and how you establish relationship with your people. That it's by grace through faith alone in Christ alone that we might hear you and receive you good words, easy words, and also tough words uh, that you might have for us. Um, Thank you uh, for Christ. Thank you for grace. And thank you for the spirit who's in here with us, in us this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, so uh, my kids, they love to play with uh, sidewalk chalk, right, Holden? No, you don't like to play with sidewalk You do like to play with sidewalk chalk. I know that for a fact. Um, they, they, like, make cool designs, and they do all kinds of stuff. They make hopscotch blocks that are, like, 50 things long on the sidewalk, just all sorts of things. But they also like to just, like, pulverize, like, the, the little blocks of sidewalk chalk into, like, fairy dust or magic powder. If you add water to it, uh, they'll make paint. 
Um, it's basically like just find the messiest way possible you could possibly ever play with sidewalk chalk. That's kind of what they do. Uh, and if you watch them like actually make that stuff, um, the powder, the paint, or whatever, they just they take a, a chunky piece of sidewalk chalk and they just grind it back and forth across the same spot on the driveway and it just builds up this small pile of colored dust and the, the chalk just like shrinks down into this like teeny tiny little nub and the danger uh, at that point is that if you like if you keep going, you run the risk of dragging like your thumb or like your fingernail across that same like gritty cement or whatever. I know some of you are feeling actually what that feels like right now uh, as I'm using words. Um, and even though like it's just a piece of sidewalk chalk, like just something about it feels violent. Like just to sit there and like watch them do that. But it's like, I know, like I'm witnessing a murder or something. I know that sidewalk chalk, it goes like that, uh, but it just feels like it shouldn't end that way. Like it just feels like really violent watching them do that. Whatever it feels like, to be one of those pieces of sidewalk chalk, um, that's kind of what it feels like to walk through Hosea. Week after week after week, just like kind of ground over, like over and over and over again across the same book and the same woes and the same warnings and the same judgments until like by the, by the end, like there's nothing left of us but like little, little spiritual nubs, like wicked, idolatrous, uh, judged nubs of our souls left at the end. And then, Hey, but then we get to celebrate Christmas, right? So isn't that fun? So like I know that some of us feel that. I've had conversations with, with some of you. I feel that. Uh, and sometimes it's like, man, I, can we just get, kind of get through this? Can we get over this? Can we move on to something else? But the repetitive nature of Hosea, it's not an accident. It, it's on purpose. Like you and I, we repeat ourselves. We say the same things in different ways, at different times, if we don't want someone to miss what we're saying, right? Some call it nagging, right? But if you're, one that's, if you're the one that's saying it, it's called being helpful, right? right? And so God and his prophets, they do this stuff all the time. They beat the same drum over and over and over again because there's stuff that they don't want us to miss. And the bummer is that repetition that's meant to like grab our attention, sometimes it loses our attention, Especially when the stuff that, that they're saying, it's like not sunshine and rainbows all the time. <clears throat> There's a, a now famous story that Kelly likes to tell that, uh, that I do not remember, um, but, but she says really happened. And so supposedly I asked her a question uh, as I was getting ready to leave the house one day and she was like in the middle of answering and I guess I thought that I'd heard enough, uh, that I like, I could fill in the blanks, I, I guessed what she could say, um, I don't know, but apparently I was satisfied with whatever I'd heard at that point and so like I just, on autopilot, I walked out the back door, I, I slowly walked uh, and got into my car and just casually backed out of the driveway while she was mid-sentence, she was still answering my question while I just pulled away. I, I wasn't actively running away, I mean, I think she hadn't said anything like mad that ticked me off. I wasn't like, like in a hurry. My brain just floated away and was like, oh, I, like, I think we're going to work now. I, I think that I'm a pretty good listener. Uh, and, I, and I think I'm not absent-minded, but also apparently I am. And so like whatever all was swimming in my brain that day, that only happens because uh, I think that I've probably heard it all before. Right, I've been there, I've done that, I know, I know what she's going to say, yada, 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 I know, I know, I know, right? Um, so I, I make a lot of assumptions, I fill in a lot of the blanks for myself, and I unconsciously just kind of give myself permission to go somewhere else, like mentally, but actually, literally, physically, to go somewhere else, while she's mid-sentence. And, and that says nothing, mind you, about the kind of talker that she is. It says everything about the kind of listener that, that I am. All right, look, there are, there are times of day, there are moods that I'm in, there are things that Kelly can like, pick up on that helps her know when is it a good time to talk to me about stuff. But at the end of the day, like, it, it is not her job to make me listen. I should want to listen when she talks. And even when I don't want to, I get to, right? And I, and I should, that's on me. Like My hearing is my responsibility. I, I say that apart from the Lord, like there's no one else's voice that matters more to me uh, than my wife. But, but how well I'm actually hearing her in the moment, that says a lot about how true that actually is in the moment. 
whatever assumptions I'm making or whatever filters that I'm using, ever like those say a lot about what I believe about her and our relationship. And, and if that's true on some random conversation on some random weekday that I can't even remember, surely that's true when we are saying hard things to each other in really difficult conversations. And this dynamic, this is true of our relationship with the Lord as well. Like we hear things and we even repeat things that, that we swear like God said somewhere in the Bible, but like he's just never said that. And, and sometimes we don't hear things that he has said over and over and over again. And all of the time, like how we're hearing the Lord is a reflection not of him, but of us. Part of what I get to do as a husband and, and part of what we get to do as disciples of Jesus is become better listeners of the voices that we say are most important. And that doesn't happen by, by tuning the other person out or asking them to, to tone it down, right? Doesn't go well. It happens when, when we stop making assumptions. We stop just simply like reacting to things that we say or checking out or doing whatever we got to do to just got to get through this conversation. We become better listeners when we take our thoughts captive and we remind ourselves of what's at the root of this relationship. Who am I in this relationship? Who am I to this person? Who are they to me? Are they for me or are they against me? What do they want? What's at stake? What defines this relationship that we are exchanging words in right now? We get to ask ourselves those questions to become better listeners because we will receive words wrongly if we're believing wrongly about the person who's saying them, and that is much easier to do than we think that it is sometimes. And so in today's passage, uh, God's going to lead his people back to some of the roots of their relationship with him and remind them in the middle of saying lots and lots of hard words that we've all heard over these last several weeks, who they are to each other and how they should hear him. Not as a grumpy God, right, who's just constantly nagging and wants to grind them down into tiny stubs of sidewalk chalk, but as a faithful dad and a faithful shepherd who wants to protect them and bring them back home into a life of grace. And so our kind of main thing for this morning that we're just going to see is that hearing hard words, it brings us back to the roots of our faith. And we're going to start that uh, by looking at the first few verses of our focal passage this morning. Uh, 11, 12 through 12, 6. Uh, we'll read that again together. It says, Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit. But Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. Ephraim feeds on the wind and pursues the east wind all day long. They multiply falsehood and violence. They make a covenant with Assyria, and oil is carried to Egypt. The Lord has an indictment against Judah and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his manhood, he strove with God. He strove with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He met God at Bethel, and there God spoke with us. The Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his memorial name. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice, and wait continually for your God. Our first point this morning is that people of faith aren't flawless. Uh, <clears throat> so I'm an only kid. Uh, <clears throat> maybe that surprises some of you and maybe that doesn't surprise some of you. And if that, if you have thoughts about that, like I probably just don't want to hear them uh, right now or whatever, you can keep those to yourself. But, but as the only kid in my house growing up, like I, I knew nothing of sibling rivalry, but now I do. Uh, I've, got, I've got five kids, like, and knowing some of, some of you, uh, I know that sibling rivalry does not stop after you like, get out of middle school, right? Uh, that kind of extends into adulthood sometimes. But, but there are also different kinds of sibling rivalry. Like, there's the kind that seems to just be all about one-upping your siblings just for the sake of one-upping them, and that's it. But then there's also like a, a one-upping that seems to be for the sake of, of winning your parents' approval or, like, or some like title in some imaginary competition of like, of like being the favorite kid or the best kid or whatever. But whatever the reason, it all flows from, from some misunderstanding of what makes a family a family. Like who is everyone to one another and, and how does that work? And here in Hosea, 
Like we can see a, a sibling rivalry brewing among God's people. If you've not been around, uh, God's people have split in half. Like to the north, you have Israel, which is called Ephraim. And in the south, you have Judah. They, they parted ways, uh, separate kings, separate uh, capital cities, separate places of worship, all that stuff. Uh, and they are quite literally in rivalry with one another. Like not just in front of all the other nations, but, but also in the eyes of the Lord as well. They want to be the favorite kid. Like the, the favorite faithful kid. And you can look at what God says in the first few lines of our passage and hear who you might think is God's favorite. It's Judah. Like it's obviously Judah. While Ephraim is, is lying all the time and making really bad deals with enemies from, uh, from the east who hate God and love and justice, Judah still walks with God and he is faithful. You can like imagine the conversation at dinner, like, man, Ephraim, why can't you just be more like Judah? Like, man, like, J J Judah can do no wrong, but Ephraim, man, you just can't do anything right. Like, it's just a, a stressful mess. Some of us have probably sat at those uh, dinners before, uh, and you can relate with some of that stuff. But, but then God throws a curveball in, in verse 2. He says this. God says that he has an indictment against Judah. Like, God's taken the, the good kid to court. But, but how does that work? Like, how can, how can you have an indictment against him at the same time? All right, like if God, like, took a photo out of his wallet and was like, hey, here's the mugshot of my perfectly faithful kid, you might be like, what? Like, really? Like, faithful? You think so? And, and God goes on to try to explain himself in a weird way, like, talking about someone else named Jacob, who's not come up before, but he's not a third sibling. He, he's an ancestor of both Ephraim and Judah. God's, God's not trying to like talk about someone new now and like change the conversation or point to some third better sibling. He is trying to talk to both Ephraim and Judah at the same time about themselves by going back to their shared roots of his relationship with them. He's referring to a part of the family tree that they all share in common, which is brilliant. Like, it's a brilliant idea. It's a, it's a brilliant way to diffuse sibling rivalry and be able to say some, like, hard but important things to them both at the same time in the same way. And there are three things that we kind of see uh, that he brings up here. First is that, like, they're a shared people. All right? He gets to remind Ephraim and Judah that they are a shared people. I know, you guys, that as you scroll through uh, the socials, as you hear people talk, as you, like, see bumper stickers on cars or signs, in people's front yard, like, I know that you see that stuff. And sometimes you think, like, they are definitely not my people. And I know that you think that because sometimes I think that, right? Like, I think that. I'm tempted to think that. Like, you see stuff and you're like, how can these people be related to me? Like, how can they be my friends? How can we go to the same church? How can they be a Christian, right, and still have these things or think these things? These are not my people, but Jesus shows up and says, if they are my people, and if you are my people, then, then those people are your people, right? But how easy is it to, to just identify ourselves or, or other people as like the bad kid or the good kid? Like we start othering brothers and sisters in Christ to the point where we're either like, we're either putting ourselves out there as God's ideal, right? That, that any real Christian should be like like me or like us, or we are the righteous rebel, right? Who's, who's bucking a broken church and a broken religion and pretending like being the, the black sheep. Like that's a badge of honor to wear in some way. Either way, we're either right for being right or we're right for being wrong against something that's not right. But, but Jesus reminds us that when we do that, when we see stuff like the way, we, we are taking shots at the people that Jesus took shots for people that he welcomed in to his family that we don't get to, to keep or to kick out. We don't get to decide that. This is when it comes to like hearing the Lord rightly, like what we get to hear first and loudest is his welcome, that everyone in the room receives the same welcome into the same family to sit at the same table. So by bringing up Jacob, God hopes to remind Ephraim and Judah that whether they like it or not, they are all family. 
They are each other's people by his design because they are his by his design. It's his calling and not a competition that makes them that. Right? And today Jesus gets to be our call. They also, and this is number two, they have a shared problem. All right, so, so Jacob was a brother too. And there was some sibling rivalry there. He was a twin brother. He tricked his brother, Esau, on multiple occasions. Uh, he tricked him out of his birthright. He tricked him out of his father's blessing uh, towards the end of his life. From, from the womb, Jacob was literally hot on the heels of his brother. He tricked his dad, Isaac, who also happened to be a liar. And his dad's dad, Abraham, also was known for lying. Right? It just kind of like runs in the family. In fact, Jacob's name means trickster. Like that's the name that they gave him. And by, by bringing up Jacob and his sins, God's reminding Ephraim and, and Judah that they don't just share a family, but they share a, a family history, right? They share some family sins that are alive and are well in both of them. Our, our text begins by saying Ephraim is, is multiplying falsehood and surrounding God with lies. Sounds pretty tricky, right? And God indicts Judah with Ephraim. And he says, man, he gives them both the same prescription for what repentance is supposed to look like. He says, return to God, wait for him, hold fast to love and justice. He gives them this, both have wicked roots and rotten fruit, like, just like us. But again, how easy is it when we, when we hear ourselves get called out or we hear someone else get praised to hear just something else entirely? Like, man, I always get called out. I must be the worst. Or, or they got a pat on the back. Like they got praised about something and so everyone must think that I'm terrible. Like we, we hear something about ourselves and, and make it into something about someone else or, or we hear something about someone else and we turn into something about us. But Judah is a mixed bag and so is Ephraim and so are we. Like so are our theological heroes. So are our, uh, our favorite political parties and, and people. So are our favorite teachers and influencers and home decorators or athletes or whatever. We're all mixed bags because we all share the same problem. Case in point, there's a, there a crack in my bedroom door at home. And I told our community group uh, this story a couple weeks ago about like how I put that there with my fist one day. Years ago. Okay, this wasn't like yesterday. All right. Years ago, when I, I like just lost my temper about something and, and the response that almost everyone gives anytime that they know that that was a thing, that I've gotten angry at any point in my life is like, oh, I just can't see Scott getting mad. <laughs> and first of all, like Kelly hates that, all right? Because she sees me get, 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 get mad. But then like secondly, man, like uh, it's true. Who could see this guy losing his temper, right? It's, it's kind of true, right? Uh, but, but the reality is you and I, like, we'd be a fool to think that I'm above that. To think that there's not something in me and that there's not something in you right now that the Lord could and should rightly indict in all of us. Because we're all just a bunch of, of, of mixed bags. Like, our family tree goes all the way back to the very first people made by God who rebelled against God. Ephraim and Judah, they, they can't deny that they're in that tree. And so whatever you think it means for Judah to still be walking faithfully with the Lord, whatever you should hear when you hear that, we shouldn't hear that it means that, that he's flawless or that, that we need to be flawless. In fact, it seems like faithfulness might look more like admitting our flaws than anything else, which leads to the third thing that we see here with Jacob uh, is that they both have a shared promise. Between the two twin brothers, Jacob and Esau, the promise that God made to their, their grandpa Abraham and to their dad Isaac, it was passed down through Jacob's line. And that was a line that both Ephraim and, and Judah share in. This promise was for a people and a land that would be God's, all right? And, and, and where they would get to live together and they would get to prosper forever if the people would be faithful to the Lord. And clearly, like it seems that one side of the family tree was considered faithful and the other side was not at that point, which makes the fact that God would make that promise to Jacob all the sweeter. Because when it says that God met Jacob at Bethel and spoke with us, 
which is interesting. Not just him, but he spoke with, with us. Don't miss that. Hosea is saying that whatever God said to, to, to Jacob at Bethel, he's also saying to us today. But when God met Jacob, Jacob was fleeing for his life away from his home. His brother wanted to kill him, and he was leaving to find a, a wife and start a new life out of town with some extended family. And at the beginning of his journey, God shows up one night at a place uh, that he later called Bethel. And God, God says this. This is from Genesis 28. God said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth. And you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land. For I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. So apparently God does uh, carry on mugshots of his kids because he gave a promise to a not into a life of ease. It would not make his life easy. It would not make his relationships easy or, or his circumstances easy. It sent him into a hard life of laboring and wrestling. He wrestled with family members who, who ended up actually tricking him. He wrestled with the Lord. Like literally when it says that he strove with God and an angel, it means he like jujitsued with an angel. Like that actually happened. Uh, but the fact that his faith was a fight, that he had to wrestle, that was not a sign that it was weak or that it was bad. It was evidence that his faith was real. God ended up changing Jacob's name to Israel, which means wrestled with God, like fighter with God, contended with God. He grapples with God, and that is considered good. But Hosea does not call out the fact that Jacob got his name changed. He points our attention instead to, to God's name. His memorial name, Yahweh, the God of armies, who is who he is and always will be. Because it is, it's him who spoke. He spoke to Jacob, to Hosea, and to his people. And it's who's speaking to us today to remind us that the promise that he made does not depend on anyone else's name but his. He said it was going to happen, and so he'll make it happen. Even if that means he has to fight to make a faithful people out of an unfaithful people. He will make sure that the family he's called will get back home. And do you know what that looks like? Like some, sometimes for us, what that looks like, it looks like what it looked like for Jacob. A lot of wrestling, weeping, seeking God's favor. Not because we're not sure if it's there, but because we know that it already is. It's on the other side. It was after God made his promise that Jacob refused to stop wrestling with the Lord until the Lord blessed him. And it was after Jacob received that blessing that he refused to avoid his brother that he stole from. And instead, he sought him through tears of confession and repentance to make amends. And it's now, after Christ has lived and died and rose again, to pay for our sin and seal our redemption, that we get to walk in the steps of Jacob and heed the Lord's call to return to the Lord, to hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for our God. Because the help that we need to get there has already been promised to us. And that's what faithfulness looked like. It not being flawless, but believing in the faithfulness of God. Not one-upping our siblings or winning God's affection over and over above everyone else. But believing that God's help not just can, but it will bring you back home in the end. Like no matter where you've run to, people of faith aren't flawless. But the object of their faith is. And this lies at the root of our relationship with the Lord that will, that will help us hear him rightly even when he is indicting us, if we're willing to hear him out, right? Which leads us to our second point this morning is that, that the flawless are really just fools. They're foolish. Let's look at verses seven through nine in chapter 12. It says this, a merchant in whose hands are false balances, he loves to oppress. Ephraim has said, ah, but I am rich. 
I have found wealth for myself in all my labors that uh, they cannot find in me iniquity or sin. I am the Lord, your God from the land of Egypt. I will again make you dwell in tents as in the day of the appointed feast. It's God's response. So the flawless are really just foolish. Uh, by God's grace and a whole lot of work, like Kelly and I, we enjoy a, a pretty great marriage. Um, and that's meant like confronting sins and insecurities uh, in ourselves and in one another like over and over and over again over the years. And, and for me, there are just, like two insecurities in particular that just swirl around in me at any given moment or whatever. And one is like just always wanting to know what she's, what she's actually thinking or feeling. Like it's now a joke between us that I say a million times a day like, hey, how you doing? You doing okay? You doing all right? How you feeling? You all right? Like to the point where it's like she says like, no, I'm not okay because you keep asking me that question. All right? So, so that's, the, that's what I'm working on right now. Uh, to ask one time and then actually believe her when she gives me an answer. Um, but then the second insecurity is, is that she might actually give me an honest answer about that. Which like if some of you know, Kelly is prone to do. To give honest answers about things. And so like I, I don't want to hear if I've messed up. Or if I'm failing her in some way, I don't want to not be living up to this like picture of a, a good, faithful Christian husband. My worst nightmare is to be seen and to be judged and to be found wanting in anything, let alone in my, my most important relationship. And so I'm, I'm constantly like opening the door for honest feedback, but then I, like, I just want to slam it before anything can actually come through that's critical. Uh, you're learning all kinds of things about me today. Uh, and for years, this made it tough for Kelly to have like serious marriage conversations with me to the point where Kelly's like, look, like I don't want to tell you hard stuff anymore because you don't want to hear it. And I'd be like, no, I do. I do want to hear it. And she's like, no, you don't. <laughs> because every time I bring it up, you just lawyer up. Like you build a case against everything that I say every single time. To use Hosea's words, like I was unwilling to even believe she could have an indictment against me. Because if I let myself believe that, like what kind of man or husband or leader would that, would that make me? And so even though my theology and my gospel told me that like I didn't have to be flawless, to be faithful, like practically, functionally in my relationships, I sounded a lot like Ephraim. Like good luck finding in, in me any kind of iniquity or sin at all. Like anything that you might find, I will have an answer for it. Believe me. And I know I'm like, our marriage, I know I'm telling the story of some of your relationships as well, not just marriage, but family and, and friends and work stuff, also some of our relationships with Jesus. Because like, we know that, we know that we're not perfect. We'll throw that around all the time. Like, nobody's perfect, right? But, but our unwillingness to even hear an indictment against us isn't just a husband and wife thing, right? That's a, it's just an us thing. It's a human thing. Like even though we are quick to say the roots of our faith go back to a God who had to die for our sins, right? We still have a really hard time believing that we could be in the wrong right now. Like, like in this moment, in a conversation, in a social media like back and forth thing or, or whatever, like not a generic theological reality. But in this argument that we're having, there's no way I could possibly be wrong about this. Whether or not we know it, that posture of heart is our theology. That's, that's actually what we believe working itself out in real time. If our gospel doesn't let us be wrong, if our gospel isn't a breath of fresh air because it says we can be wrong and we can actually admit that, that we're wrong and that we can still be good with God and our church and our family and our community anyway, like then we are functionally living out of a different gospel. And the tricky thing is that that's, like living that way can actually feel right sometimes. Like we, we should aim to be above reproach right? That's one of the things that God calls us to. We should have convictions about things, and we, could, we should stick to them. God calls us to live holy lives in obedience to him, and I hope that when you guys go and lay your head down on the pillow at night, right, that, that you have a clean conscience, that you know that you aim to do right by the Lord and the people around you, and if you didn't, that you addressed it, right? I tell my kids, and some of you, I tell you often that like, man, things will come and go. Situations will change. You might have everything. You might have nothing. But one thing you will always have with you is your conscience. 
That's your integrity. And, and being at peace there, that is worth everything. And so we should hope and strive to do right by everyone all the time. That's not a bad thing. And discipleship, like, man, what, what we get to do as Christians, we come into this Christian environment, it's the process of becoming like Jesus, the, like becoming like the one who always did right by everybody. And so the lie that we can believe is that now that we've been saved by Jesus, right, now that we've, we've acknowledged that we have been wrong in the past, now we need to be exactly like Jesus. And, and my point is in the very nature of discipleship itself. It is a, it's a it's a process of becoming something. Jesus didn't come to find a faithful people. Jesus came to make a faithful people. That's a really important distinction, right? And he didn't come to make a faithful people overnight, not, not after one profession of faith. He knew, just like any good marriage, that it was going to be God's grace and a whole lot of work that would make his followers become like him. And we, when we pretend that we already are like Jesus, or that, that we should have already arrived at the end of that process, that's actually when we keep ourselves from becoming like him at all. And we actually become something very different. And it's right here in our text. In, in this chunk, God, he, he compares Ephraim to a merchant, a shady salesman. But he's not highlighting the similarities as much as he's highlighting some differences here. See, like the salesman, he knows he's being shady. Like he knows that the, the price tag on the shelf, that's going to be different when you go up and you ring it at the scanner. The price is going to be different there. Like he knows that he's doing something wrong. Like, but Ephraim on the other end, he's oblivious to his wrongdoing. They, they, he's moved beyond, they moved beyond the family's deceptive roots in Jacob and they are now like deceiving themselves in the present. They think that whatever they're doing is, is perfectly fine. They think if the IRS, like if they came in for an audit, they would come out squeaky clean. Wouldn't find, wouldn't find anything. All this money, it's my money, right? I've made this money on the up and up. We are self-made business people. No one would be able to find any iniquity in me that I could possibly be punished for. And again, the thing is, God in some way wants them to be able to say that. Like, they aren't self-made, right? All that they have is from the Lord. But, but God wants them to be able to say, yeah, look at my books. Anything fraudulent at all. He wants his people to be above reproach. But by pretending that they are when they really aren't, like it hasn't made them more godly, it's made them less godly. They've stopped becoming like the Lord and started becoming something worse. Well, like nerd time, all right? But if you look under the hood of, of our passage this morning in the Hebrew, like the original language that this passage was written in, the word for merchant is the word for Canaanite. It means some things to some people and doesn't to somebody else. The Canaanites were the folks that, that fought God and his people throughout the whole Old Testament. They were the enemies. They were the bad guys, all right? And because the Canaanites were known for being like shrewd business people, the Israelites started just using that word to just refer to any old trader, any old merchant at all. And so what God's saying here, something that we miss in the English, is that, that Ephraim isn't just worse than a shady merchant. Ephraim is worse than the Lord's enemy. How is that? Like, because Ephraim's not even acknowledging the reality that they are breaking the law. Like, at least the Canaanites, like, know that they're doing something wrong. But Ephraim can't fathom, cannot stomach an indictment from the Lord. They think they're becoming more foolish with every passing day. And this happens to us when we refuse to hear God's indictments against us. When we think that we're above whatever hard things people tell us, we stop becoming like Jesus and we start becoming like the world. It is impossible to refuse our need for grace and still become like the God of all grace. We can't reject the idea of, of ever rightly being humbled or humiliated and then still become like Jesus who humbled himself and let himself be humiliated. Refusing to, to ever be wrong is a disbelief in our need for and the power of the gospel. Some of us would say, but like, but isn't that protecting the gospel? Like, isn't admitting to the world or to my friends that I screwed up? Isn't that just telling them that Jesus is weak or that our faith is just a sham? Like, wouldn't keeping my skeletons in the closet actually help God's reputation? Save me, save us from embarrassment. 
how's the world going to believe the gospel if I, a Christian, acknowledge that I might even just maybe be wrong, let alone admit that I actually am? And I'll tell you why. Because it's wildly refreshing. It is wildly refreshing. Like soft hearts come from a strong gospel. Show me a heart that's quick to confess and I will show you a heart that believes in unbreakable grace. If you worry that your shortcomings might damage the gospel, then let the gospel shine by letting your shortcomings be seen and confessed and covered by grace. Willingness to consider like that the problem might be me. An eagerness to to apologize without any strings attached without making any excuses for why you did what you did. Like those aren't signs of a weak faith. Those are signs of a vibrant, resilient faith like just guarded by a strong gospel. The gospel doesn't need protecting. But if you want to try, start by living as if it's still strong enough to protect you on this side of the cross. God tries to stir this up in Ephraim by reminding them of how he protected them while they wandered in the desert for 40 years after he brought them out of Egypt. He, he sheltered them in tents and he kept them safe um, without walls, without armies, without a city. He protected them while they lived in tents for decades in the wilderness and they celebrate that now. Like they have feasts, they have the Feast of Booze or, or Tabernacles and, and every year they celebrate God's protection and provision when their ancestors were at their most vulnerable. But, but while they're singing all the worship songs, and they're having all the potlucks and they're saying all the things about how good of a protector and provider God is at all these parties. They are functionally living as if, as if things are very different now on this side of the desert. And so God says he's going to make them live in tents again. He's going to make them wander. And, and he's willing to declare hard things like that. Not to grind them down into a little stub. Right? but to bring them back to the heart of who he is and who they are and their relationship together and their need for him. And if they were wise, I think that is exactly what they would do because only the foolish reject God's protection. And this is the last point for this morning. We'll look at verses uh, 10 through 15 together. God says this, I spoke to the prophets. It was I who multiplied visions and through the prophets gave parables. If there is iniquity in Gilead, they shall surely come to nothing. In Gilgal, they sacrifice bulls. Their altars also are like stone heaps on the furrows of the field. Jacob fled to the land of Aram. There Israel served for a wife and for a wife he guarded sheep. By a prophet, the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt and by a prophet, he was guarded. Ephraim has given bitter provocation, so his Lord will leave his blood guilt on him and will repay him for his disgraceful deeds. Only the foolish reject God's protection. So at some point I realized that I had a, a choice to make in my marriage. Either I was going to have to be able to, to like hear hard things and reckon with my flaws and deal with reality, and, or I was going to have to be content with, with a wife who would stop being honest with me and who would keep things to herself, and who I'd never really be able to really know at the level that I think a husband and wife should be able to know each other, and to communicate about things that we should be able to communicate about. And in all honesty, like, neither option felt really safe. Both were uncomfortable. Both would come with their own pain, and, and their own vulnerability, and their own difficulties. But, but only one leads to life, and leads to freedom. And so it is here in Hosea. As well, God has said a lot of hard things to his people. He sent prophets who teach and warn and deliver his messages. He sent sent a lot of them, right? And some of them, like Hosea, he's given a particularly vivid task of like trying to get his message across to his people, repeating a lot of the same things over and over and over again. And at the end of the day, it's up to the people to decide not only how they're going to hear his words, but how they're going to respond to his words. God means what he says. And we can tune him out or we can ask him to tone it down, but, but his words are going to work themselves out in our lives. If there's iniquity in Gilead, he's going to tear it down. In Gilgal, where they're offering idolatrous sacrifices, he's going to topple everything over. God's not playing around. 
he's set against sin and he's not gonna let it stand. And, and so if he brings an indictment against you, whether that's while you're reading the Bible or praying or just through a, a conversation with a, a loved one, like, yes, he, he wants to call that out and he wants to destroy it. Like, he, he doesn't wanna just let it sit there as a monument to something else in your life or in your heart and, and that can be painful. That can be painful. We, will, we, we can grieve the loss of our sin. Our flesh isn't going to like it. Just like anyone who's struggled with addiction can tell you, like what it's like to, to tear your whole being away from something that's actually not good for it. The process of repentance can begin with something that actually feels destructive at first. It might feel unnatural and foreign and unsafe, even though it's good and it's right and it leads to life. It's why some of us would rather do anything than have hard conversations where we might be wrong about something because we have a hard time separating ourselves from our sins, from our idols, from our reputation. It feels like we are bound up with them. And so we're afraid if the Lord takes them down, he's taking us down with him. And that might be true for Ephraim. We read that here. Like if at the root of their faith, like it's really not the Lord and they continue in their foolishness and respond by provoking him by like going on the defense or the offense by lawyering up instead of just simply believing and receiving his words, then the blood on their hands will stay there and they'll go down with their idols. And that's true for any of us who who would fight for their idols against the God who's died for them. Who'd rather punch a hole in their bedroom door, lawyer up on the inside. But the good news is that if you are in Christ, you are not your sin. You aren't the skeletons in your closet. You aren't your reputation, good or bad. You aren't the idols that you let stand sometimes. You are Christ's. You are a new creation living in some old flesh that, that one day, someday will be shed entirely. And part of God's words at work in your life, like that's helping you shed some of that old stuff now so that you can begin living now, slowly but surely as a new creation while we wait for the whole thing, like top to bottom to be made new. And that power is put to work for our good by tearing down whatever comes between us and him. It's what's guarded the Israelites while they were out sleeping in tents outside in the wilderness. And it's what, what guarded them inside their camp. And it, it's what guards us inside of his church from the sin that can destroy us from the inside out. So one last time, God brings his people back to the roots of their relationship. Jacob, like when he was a fugitive, he fled to some extended family in a place called Aram in hopes of finding a wife. And, and he did except he had to work seven years for one. And at the end of that seven years, it wasn't the one that he thought he was gonna get at the end. So he had to work another seven years guarding sheep as a shepherd just to get the bride that he wanted. Church, we are the bride that God is willing to work for. Even when it doesn't seem fair, even when it doesn't seem right. And as God's prophet, Moses, like he, got, he guarded his people who were anything but flawless with nothing but God's words often very hard, very indicting words. And those words were God's way of guarding their hearts, of fencing their lives with truth so they could live freely from all the guilt and all the shame and all of the heavy labor of Egypt and begin to live freely with him, roaming the pastures of his grace while they waited and wandered towards the land that he had promised them. Those hard words, which he, which he basically repeated over and over and over again, they spared them from destruction over and over and over and over again. It's not repeated nagging from God, but, but the repeated sounds of his refusal to quit. Only the foolish would hear his voice and reject his protection. So I had to repeat this over and over to Kelly. Um, I, I, I know you don't want to tell me what you're thinking right now. <laughs> I know that you don't want to tell me what, what you're about to say because you have every reason to believe that I'm just going to get defensive. But I need you to say it anyway. And I still might get defensive. And you can call that out too, right? But, but there's no way for me to grow thick gospel skin and grow a soft gospel heart than, than for me to hear hard things from you and believe that you still love me. 
unless I experience it over and over and over again and begin to believe more and more that that might actually be true. And there was just as much of a, of a cost for Kelly and all that too because sure enough, like I, I did still get defensive over those things. Like, and I still do sometimes, but, but we enjoy a depth and an intimacy in our relationship because we both put in the work. And when we go back to the root of our relationship, which is the gospel, we get to let Jesus be the hero of our marriage because he's the one who put in all the work first, that we might be free to work through our stuff together, even when it's hard, with him and with one another. And that's what we get to do together as a church today, with him. So I wanna leave you this morning with these words from John. It's one of my favorite passages in scripture, um, but also I feel like it just, in a nutshell, like talks about what we're talking about today. This is 1 John 1, 5. Through 2 1. John says, This is the message that we've heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie. We don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. This is what we get to hear today. And this is what you guys get to We get to respond to whatever it is that the Lord might be stirring in you this morning, to his word. Maybe there are things that came up as you were listening, hearing, as you were drifting off and daydreaming about something else entirely. The Lord can use those things too, right, to, to bring you back to him. And so whatever he might be stirring in you today, you get to do something with that. And that might be you just sitting in your seat and praying. Now, I'd be asking for prayer. There'll be folks uh, back by that red tree who would be back along that back wall. We would love to pray with you and for you as well. You can respond by singing. You can respond through communion, which is one way that we get to celebrate each and every single week, like our declaration of faith, that, that it's in Jesus alone, his life, his death, his resurrection, that we have peace with God and we are made right with him. And so the, the broken bread up here, that represents the, the body of Christ that was broken for Jesus. And the juice up here represents the blood of Christ that was shed by Jesus. And what we ask is that if you're a Christian here, before you come up this morning, sift your hearts and see if there's something that you get to respond to this morning in repentance and in faith. And if you're not a Christian this morning, this isn't for you, but Jesus is for you and we are for you and we would love to chat with you uh, about what that looks like and maybe even celebrate coming up to communion for the first time today. So take a, the next few minutes, do what you will and respond as the Lord seems to lead you.